The Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. This Echo Chamber episode is brought to you by the W2O Group, which is making the world a healthier place through marketing and communications. And it's What to Know podcast on digital marketing and communications. Welcome. Well, thank you everyone for, you know, in this four o'clock downpour for coming out for this session, this really important session. Well, it's session. dry in here, so. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Although we were saying it was cold so we could use a fire pit right here <laughs> to make this a real fireside. Okay. So welcome, Dr. Lomax. Thank you. So for those of you that may not know, so you have been president and CEO of the United Negro College Fund since 2004. Yes. And again, for those of you who may not know, the United Negro College Fund is, I think, the largest private provider of scholarships and other educational resources for African-American students. And I think, I want to say since being founded in the 70s, 72. No, 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 no. We're 75. I know we don't look it. Uh, I'm 72. UNCF is 75. So, okay, so the, the stat, well, then I got my stat wrong. It's, okay, so, we were so, founded in 44. Okay, so, but since 1972, you've raised over $2.2 billion? No, I've raised over ah. $2.7 billion in the 15 years I've been at oh, UNCF. Oh, wow. UNCF has raised $5 billion in the 75 years. Now, you know, a billion dollars isn't what it was you know, 40 or 50 years ago. So uh, they had the heavy lift. I have had, you know, Bill and Melinda Gates. And it's a little easier when you're dealing yeah, with them. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, well. Uh, apologies for my numbers off. So $2 billion in, since you've been there, over $2 billion since 2. you've been 7. there. 2.7. Two point, almost want, $3 billion. I want all my money. Almost $3 billion since you've been there in, yes, since yes. 2004. Well, that... I'm not gone yet. I just signed a new contract. Oh, well. For how long? Well, they think it's for four years, but I'm, we're going to do a capital campaign, uh, and so it's going to take us to raise probably a billion dollars, and mm -hmm. that's going to take me a little bit longer. But that will be in addition to the to the annual campaign, which we have, which raises between sixty and a hundred million dollars every year. Wow, it's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. Even uh, in these days, it's yes, a lot of money. it absolutely. So I want to ask the audience something. Um, who here is familiar with? A mind is a terrible thing to waste campaign. Pretty much, I see like most hands, okay, I think. Yeah. All the old people in the audience. Yes. Well, so, so that, however, has been your slogan since the 70s. That's right. It has yes, been since yes. Vernon Jordan. Mm -hmm. Remember, anybody heard of Vernon Jordan before? Well, he was, I, I'm in the job that Vernon Jordan once had. Hmm. And Vernon didn't stay long. Uh, he had other things to do. But while he was there, he got Young and Rubicam to do a campaign. And this was in the day when you could do a, you know, a tagline campaign, and he did, and uh, produced a mind is a terrible thing to waste, which was, you know, if you're into those, and I was, I was, I was in Charlotte, North Carolina, a couple of weeks ago at the 17th annual Women Who Lead Maya Angelou luncheon, wow. and uh, <laughs> it's a long name, okay. But even more incredible than that, all these women, and there were about a thousand of them, wear big hats, and to the luncheon. So all these big hats in the luncheon, and we had uh, Oprah Winfrey came to give the speech, and that was a whole different story in and of itself because Oprah Winfrey does not normally tell you about this powerful relationship that she had with Maya Angelou. But anyway. Uh, uh, we had this lunch, and I've lost what I was trying to tell you. Oh, 
We, we had this big luncheon, and, uh, we, I, and they showed old campaigns. And one of the old campaigns they showed was the Maya Angelou campaign, and still we rise. And I still get goose pimples just hearing Maya Angelou, and still we rise. Uh, and it was about uh, the power of education to transform the lives of, uh, of people. And that's the work that UNCF has been doing for 75 years. 75 years. Yeah. So um, you're still using the slogan, the, the slogan, you're still using the logo, the slogan, yes. a mind is a terrible thing to waste four decades in. Mm -hmm. um, what does that mean now and how has the meaning of that slogan changed? You know, I think, I, I think the, you know, it's a great tagline. Uh, it's, it, it's, you know, I taught English. I taught literature. I, you know, I have a PhD in it. That's what the doctor is. I don't call me if you're having an, you know, appendicitis or something. But, uh, but if you have a dangling participle, I can assist. Uh, but uh, there's something about that. A mind is a terrible thing to waste, which I think it's it's universal. It's powerful, and. And then when you put it in the context of the late civil rights movement, when black Americans are going from being treated as you know, marginalized, are still being brutalized, have been gone through the 1960s, which is a terrible, terrible period in American history. You know, the 50s with, from Emmett Till through uh, the assassination of Dr. King in 1968, just being treated like human beings was to elevate us. And, but then to suggest that there was something powerful uh, that we were giving the nation an opportunity to support and invest in, and that is the minds of black kids who were trying to transform their own lives through education. I think it's been a it's been such a powerful and resonant um, message, and yeah, give it there. Thank you, and and I think you know and and written by you know somebody at a advertising firm who who was you know I mean it was a poet. I think it was a beautiful insight, powerful, and it still means something. We use that still. And right now we're doing a very interesting uh, campaign called the Future, around the Future Act, which is a bill which is being held up in the United States Senate by one senator, which would provide $250 million in continued support for minority-serving institutions, millions of students to get STEM education, and this one senator, Lamar Alexander, is holding it up because he wants to put the entire Higher Education Act into this bill. Uh, but we're using this, which we're activating people to write to their senators and to their members of Congress. And uh, using a digital mm -hmm. uh, campaign, which we created with some support from uh, a digital team, uh, we, I think as of today, 61,000 communications to the United States Senate uh, saying, let my people go, or let my money go. And, uh, you know, we're just going to stay at it, and we'll be at, we think we'll be at 100,000 
So you know we're we're continuing to do it, but it, but it's all within the framework of this notion that a mind is a terrible thing to waste, and if we're going to transform our nation and the lives of young people, we're going to do it in, at least in part through education. So you mentioned Young and Rubicam, and I assume you all have worked with a lot of marketing and PR agencies over the years. And I'm wondering what your experience has been around the diversity of these agencies. Well, you know. I can't see who's in the room, so I, I don't know who I'm offending. Uh, but uh, you know, they, these have not been, um, they've always been people who don't look like us. Uh, and you know, I mean, I'm very sensitive to that. I grew up in Los Angeles, California, I was mentioning to you, uh, uh, in the 1940s and 50s and early 60s. And uh, my parents owned a newspaper, a weekly newspaper. Uh, and uh, you know, we had a lot of dealings with major American corporations that wouldn't, uh, number one, advertise with black newspapers, would not advertise with black newspapers. Was, I mean, the outrage of that. Uh, and then when they did, would not use images of black people in their advertising. <sighs> a different world. Uh, and, and so I've, I've seen this, the invisibility of people who look like me. I, I know there are women in this room. Women are now in this room, uh, but they weren't. And you know, this is, this is just another um, one of those places that we've got to fight our way into. You know, uh, they have been bastions of males, bastions of white male domination. And, and you know, I, I wouldn't even watch, what was that, Mad Men? I wouldn't even watch that show. Pissed me off just to think about it, because I didn't want to see it, because I grew up around that kind of stuff, where who was in charge didn't look like us, didn't care about us, want, you know, and just assumed that they had access to our pocketbook, and our economic decisions, while we, the only thing that we could see was Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben. And you know, there's a show at uh, the Museum of Modern Art of Betty Saar. Anybody know about Betty Saar, a black woman artist? Well, Aunt Jemima's got a machine gun in that one. And you know, we're, you know, we're, it's a different, it's a different age uh, and a different, recognition that people have got to be reflected in the communications and the storytelling and the messaging. And not just as, uh, you know, voices. They've got to be reflected in the stories that are told, the messaging. It has to be authentic. And I was listening to the conversation earlier, and I give a lot of credibility to cred to uh, Capital One. They had my friend as its spokesperson for many years. I think he was, wasn't it? Wasn't Sam in that one? Uh, I think it was Capital One. Yeah, Sam, okay, I don't want to make a mistake. Uh, it was Sam Jackson, who I went to college with. He claims I was a, a dorm, uh, you know, I, I was over the dorm that he lived in. I don't think so. But uh, I am older than Sam. But he, you know, that, that he becomes the, the voice and face of a major financial corporation says that the world is changing, but not changing fast enough. 
and not changing quickly enough. And I think that this is, I, I came here today because the work that people do in this, uh, you know, is, is helping to frame the way we see the world and we operate in the world. And, you know, if, if the stories that you're telling, if the messaging is about a, a world like, unlike the one that I live in every day, why should I spend my money with your company? Why should I, why should I care about your service? Why should I respect uh, the institution that you represent? So things have not changed as quickly as we would like for, changed, for this changed. industry? Very, Very slowly. Yes. Um, and they're going to keep doing that because what is at stake here mm -hmm. is power, influence, and resources. People don't give that stuff up. Uh, Frederick Douglass said, uh, power concedes nothing without struggle. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm, I, I'm a struggler and I'm a fighter. And I think that if we're concerned about these issues, we're going to struggle and fight. I would say, on the other side of this, uh, what are people thinking? if the communications and the messaging and the storytelling is inauthentic and it doesn't reflect the people you're trying to move. You know, we have worked with PR and marketing firms. We're doing our own storytelling. You know, that's what I want us to do. I want the people who will be impacted by what we do every day to tell the stories. Because if I leave it to somebody else to tell the story, I mean, I, there was a, then they're going, to tell a, they're going to tell a perverted story. They're going to tell the story that they think their audience wants to hear. They're going to reinforce a negative narrative. You know, I picked up the New York Times. I didn't pick it up yesterday. I never pick it up anywhere I look. Uh, but they had a story in there about black colleges. I work with black colleges every This is, I'm a product of a black college. My family, all my kids, my grandkids, everybody goes to black colleges. They're good. And they're telling a story about you know, what's wrong with them. They're poor. They're this. They're that. Well, you know, it's just so negative. Why? Why tell that story? You, know, and you want to tell a story about something negative, tell the truth about what's happening at elite institutions around here. People, what about the integrity or the lack of integrity of their processes? They're, you know, people paying off to get, on, to get their kids into a school. I, I think what we're doing, the, the, the lack of reflection of people like me, like you, uh, the, you know, gender differences, is that people don't want to give up the power in the, mm -hmm. so. So the last that we counted anyway, the, in the United States, um, the peer industry is about 80% white. Yeah. And I'm wondering, if, can we benchmark that against other, other professions? Well, don't do it against tech. Uh, because, uh, you know, uh, what, and, and I'll move up a little bit. The tech stuff is, is even more troubling because you think, well, this is a relatively new industry. It shouldn't be, have these, you know, bastions of, uh, of uh, privilege and exclusion. But, you know, I, th that happens in this new industry. And it's young people who want only people who look like themselves are the only authentic, capable, qualified people to do the work. Um, and I, I, I don't know how to break through that. And then when you do open the door to bring young people who, of color and difference into these companies, they're set up for failure. 
because they're not given the kind of support and training and development that they need to compete. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, well, we, we, we had an intern, yeah. or we had some interns, you know, and gee whiz, they just were no good, you know, or they just, they just couldn't handle it. Well, did you support them? Did you get to know them? One of the things we know about bringing people who are different into organizations which have excluded them is that that is a painful, emotional, and difficult process. I mean, you've got to be, you've got to be competent and qualified to do it. You have to have the skills. But you have to be prepared for all sorts of uh, emotional and psychological assaults. Uh, one of the reasons why I think black colleges are so important for, for our kids is that at least in a black college, they have a, an opportunity to develop their skills and talents, and maybe also to build the armor that enables them to go out into the world and fight the battles that they will have to fight every day. I was with a group up in, at Brooklyn College last week called Jopwell, which does, uh, I don't know whether any of you have used them, they do uh, recruiting of people of color, That's their, and you know, young people of color. And it was just, you know, you could tell that, and, and they're you know, great young people, and they're qualified, they've done all this, and they're running smack dab into walls. And if they're there by themselves in the company, they're, they're not only running up against walls, they're isolated. So I would say that, you know, why is it the way it is today is because we're really not seeing a total commitment to making the changes that need to be made. So I don't, you, you probably saw this on Twitter, but there's a lot of um, there's a lot of engagement from people of color who are trying to break into the tech sector and the discrimination that they face, whether they're trying to get jobs at Twitter or PayPal. I think famously, I, I want to say it was PayPal. They didn't hire somebody because he said he enjoyed playing hoops in in the interview process, and they decided that would be a bad cultural fit. Well, they didn't have hoops on, in the workspace. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I, and let me just say, I, I've got a 25, 27 year old daughter who is a software engineer. And uh, she is working at Lyft, I can say that. Mm -hmm. And she, and you know, she's, she's been out in Silicon Valley now for about four years, left college without a degree, uh, was determined to go in and sharp elbow her way in, did 40 technical interviews, 40 before Pinterest hired her for an off-cycle uh, internship. And then from Pinterest, because she's so smart and she's so good, and she's my daughter, uh, you know, she then gets an offer from Lyft and, and one from uh, a, a startup called Lindup. And she went to Lindup, and she stayed there for a year. And then she decided to start her own company. She raised a quarter of a million dollars. That didn't work out so well. Then she went to, and then she went to Lyft. So she's a tough young woman. And she's smart. And she's very good. And when she doesn't like what's happening, she goes and sees the CEO of Lyft. I mean, I, I, I don't even know who he is, but she gets in to see these people. But she's got to fight her way through everything. And when she would interview, where she, I mean, you know, you, know, you couldn't even get a, you have to get it past the technical part to get the in-face interview. And she would be in these things, and there would be guys on the other side of the interview room who weren't even paying attention to her. 
It wasn't that they wanted talent. They just immediately erased someone who didn't look like the talent they were expecting. So they, you know, I, I, I don't like to be negative, but I just think there's, there's, there's still so much that people of color and women uh, are facing, and the ceilings and the obstacles and the barriers are insidious. And, uh, and I think that, that it's going to take a lot of sharp elbows to get through there. I'll give you a final story. I don't know how I'm over time or something, but I have a friend who's named Lonnie Bunch, You're, who is the first director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture that I've worked on for almost 20, I started in 2001, so I have 18 years that I've been working on this project. I'm about to, to sign off on that. But Lonnie, when we hired Lonnie to lead, as the, to, to do the work that would you know, raise the money, design the building, construct the building, put all the incredible uh, ex exhibits in there, he, he showed up at an office building not far from here and said, I'm the new director of the National Museum, and I'm here to start my job. And of course, they looked at him like, no, you're not. And it took him a while to get into the building because he's a black male. And once he got in the building, he didn't have a key. And he couldn't get in to the office. So he got somebody from, from the building's department to come in with a sledgehammer. And he beat his way <laughs> into the office. Now, today, Lonnie Bunch is not only the first director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture. He is now the secretary of the Smithsonian. He's over all of the museums. That's how bad a job Lonnie did. People didn't think he could do the work, because he looked like what he is, a black man. How did he start that job? What was in his toolkit? A sledgehammer. And I think if we're going to change these outcomes, we're going to have to get some sledgehammers in the toolkit. And you know, it isn't just that I can't find the talent. I they, this person, you know, hoops won't match up to what. We need to break through all of that, because a lot of these objections are not real. They're not legitimate. They are just people who are uncomfortable with people who don't look like them doing the work with them. We keep saying that you know, um, decisions that are made by people who are by diverse groups are better decisions. I don't think we really believe that. If we did, we would have diverse groups making the decisions. But they're harder decisions to make when you have diversity in the room. It's much easier when you're talking to yourself. I know that. I'm a black male. 70% of the people who work at United Negro College Fund are women. But only 20% of the people on the leadership team are women. I got to change that. Mm -hmm. I have to change that. I'm going to be the champion of that. 
and we're changing that one hire at a time. We're going to change our practices. We're going to change the way we evaluate. We're going to change the way we promote. Because we're doing great work, but we're not doing work as great as it could be if women had a larger role. Uh, so I think that we all have to figure out how to look in the mirror and say, why am I the obstacle? And how am I going to make the change? And do I really believe that this is a change worth making? And if I do, how hard am I going to work to make the change? So do you think one of the obstacles to that is this perception that speed is so valuable? And we actually had a session earlier today where they said one of the best um, qualities of uh, a CEO is um, being able to make decisions quickly. And is there a perception that if you have diversity, to your point, you know, it's, it's more difficult to come to a consensus, right? And, and I know we're, 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 we're in Washington, no, D.C., where I, there's an yes. executive who makes quick yes. decisions. Yes. How good are they? Right. If I, they're crappy decisions. I, I mean, if you yes. don't think, no, I don't think speed is good. And, you know, I, I mean, I do think that, you know, what is all deliberate speed? I mean, look, obviously, if you know what the right thing to do is, if you've considered it. But I do think we have to think our way through this. And I think a lot of the decisions that uh, we make, I know the decisions that I make quickly are decisions I'm comfortable with. And maybe if I'm comfortable with them, they're not the best decisions. Uh, and so, you know, I think sometimes it is how do you make, how do you make more considered decisions? And then, you know, what is the purpose of the decision? If we have an executive today uh, in this nation who's, you know, makes quick decisions. And they're really, given what he wants to accomplish, they're the right decisions. Because they are, they are decisions which help him perpetuate what he thinks is the right course for the country uh, and for himself personally. But I, I think that, you know, in some cases, the the best decisions are the ones we think really long and hard about, and we ask, what are the implications of that decision? Uh, and, you know, and, and particularly around people, people decisions. Um, is, the, is my snap response? Because I know when I interview people, there are people I just like automatically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Does that make them the right person? If I'm really comfortable with that person, does that make that person the right person? And if I'm really comfortable with that person, is it because that person is more like me than anybody else who's coming in? So I think, you know, it's for me it would be, you know, examine this and and maybe ask, how do I make more uncomfortable decisions? That's an excellent point, especially for this industry, where oftentimes you're hiring after you have the need. It's professional services, right? So you win the big client, and then you're, you're in a rush to hire afterwards. I mean, I, I live in San Francisco, and startup culture is very similar, right? They're always in a crunch. So people do revert back to what's comfortable. And I think that's part of the reason we're in the situation that we're in, both in technology and in, in our industry in PR. Yeah, except the world is different, too. You know, I mean, it's, I'm, all, I'm struck that. Uh, um, for a lot of these companies that are making these decisions, and, and I, we were dealing a lot with the tech industry, so that's, you know, and, and they were saying, oh, you know, we really want the tech to rep reflect more. Uh, well, you know, who uses yeah. technology? I mean, who is watching all this stuff that's being streamed? Who is consuming it? 
disproportionately people of color. But you know, it's going pretty well like this if they're not reflected in the decisions that are being made. You are seeing, um, I don't know, I don't know about the, because I'm confused a little bit about you know, what is PR, what is communications, what is marketing, what is storytelling, what is, math? I mean, on the creative side of this, a lot of what is, seems to me is happening is that we're really hearing and seeing and experiencing stories and messages that are coming directly from people who are, you know, who are more diverse. Uh, that's powerful messaging, and it seems to be resonating with a larger audience. And if all we do is tell the same old, you know, leave it to Beaver, Ozzie, and Harriet story, uh, you know, I mean, that's not the story people want to hear anymore if, if the messaging is always going to be the same. So I, I just think that it's short-sighted mm -hmm. not to push harder on this. And if I were running a major corporation and I wanted people to re reflect my company, I would push hard to have more people in there. I was on a board, a corporate board, that, of a company that got sold. Uh, because it done very well, and it got sold, and it didn't was not the survivor. I won't say it would, but the it was a, it was a for profit higher ed online company. I won't say who, uh, but I was the only black person on that board. Yet the number one group of people who were going to that were black women. We never got a black woman on the board. Uh, and it was very clear from the feedback I got on from the board evaluations was he's always on a soapbox. That's how I got marginalized in challenging the notion that why is it the leadership team? Why is it the, the board? never reflects the people we're actually you know, putting this company uh, in the position that it's in today. What was the reason for that? Well, it was just more comfortable to have people who looked like the people who were in charge doing the work. So I, I think that um, uh, this, is, this is about what's the best way to do it, but also how to really force the issue and make companies think about that. Are there any companies or even sectors or industries that are doing a good job at recruiting at, for instance, historically black colleges that maybe the PR industry could, could learn from? Well, I, so, uh, you know, I mean, some have more have been at it longer. I, when I, uh, so uh, I was going to talk about advertising, I won't do that, but uh, so I've been, I've spent, so I've spent 50 years teaching now and, and then a college president and then running UNCF in this sector of black colleges. Who does a good job? When I was a student in the uh, mid to late 1960s, uh, one of the things that happened at Morehouse where I went to college 
uh, was that um, the financial industry started recruiting. It was really one of the few that was doing that. And um, banks. And over time, fast forward, uh, African Americans made it into middle management, and to some extent, executive, a little bit of executive. Now, you have one bank, I mean, a bank, JP Morgan Chase, which is saying, we're going to be the bankers to black America. And we're going to really have put black people at the center and out front. That's taken half a century, half a century to get to that. So I would say this is glacial in the way it moves. There are some things that I think could happen to make things better. One is that we know for young people to succeed in companies, they need to begin to think about where they want to work much sooner in their college and even middle school and high school careers. They need to get a sense that I want to do this, I want to do this. So begin to think about that and begin to think about what are the things I need to know? You know, what are the skills I need to have? And then how do I test that against experiences? Robert Smith, Vista Equity, you've all heard of him. If you haven't, Robert's the guy who gave the speech at Morehouse and said, I'm paying off the debt for all those students. Robert, another project of Robert's is that he's creating 10,000 internships. Pause. 10,000 internships working with major American corporations. Because he recognizes that for us to get more kids of color into these positions, they got to start much earlier to, to navigate their way through those environments. They've got to begin to get the experience. They've got to begin to feel, this is the place I want to be. This isn't the place. I had one internship while I was in college at the Washington Post, summer of 1966. Guess what? I didn't become a journalist. It was a great experience. They asked me to come back. But it was the opportunity for me to decide, I love to communicate. I like to write. I'm good at all that. I don't want to live in this, this world. This is not a happy world. Uh, I, want, <laughs> I want to be simple. The other person who decided that was Richard Blumenthal, who was in that same group with me. Uh, he didn't become a journalist either, although he did get the front page and a headline uh, during his internship. But he was the editor of the Harvard Crimson, so you know, uh, I guess that <laughs> he had a lot more. He had a lot more experience, but. These internships are incredibly important. One of the things that I'm learning about, about companies that have a lot of big barriers involved in them, and barriers that have to do with more subjective decisions about evaluation, is that we have to do a better job of preparing first-generation black kids to have the soft skills, the non-technical skills to manage through that environment. So I do think that it's not just putting them into internships where, which are well-designed and strong programs that help people uh, figure out how to do the work, but also um, 
build out their skill sets. Um, and, and one of the places that we're going to be meeting with the dean of the School of Professional Studies at Columbia University in a couple of weeks, I want a partner. And this is specifically around uh, pub the public relations, communications, and marketing. Uh, how could we design a program where young people who have these experiences, internships, they, are, they say, this is the work I want to do, but I don't feel like I, my bachelor's degree has gotten me really ready. What's the next step where I could spend another year in a really top um, academic environment, but also doing some more internship that helps me really polish up the stone and be ready for the work. So I do think there are some other things that we could do to help make sure the, the young people are ready. And particularly if they're going to coming from black colleges. Why black colleges? Because 75% of the kids who go to black colleges are low income. Around 50% of them are the first in their families ever to go to college. They don't know what it's like. You know, they don't have somebody who's going to write a $500,000 check to say that they can row and can therefore go to the school and provide them with all of the, uh, the um, accoutrement of going to USC. Uh, They've got, they've, got to, they've got to spend more time developing that. But I also think you know, it, it, that they will demonstrate that they have some other non-cognitives that are really important. They're persistent. They are determined. And in the case of many of these young people, because they've had so many obstacles in their way, if they've gotten up to you, they have fallen on their face and had to pick themselves up. They are resilient. And they have a lot of those that I think over the long term are what a great employer would be looking for. People who can grow, who can uh, bend but not break, and who can uh, uh, bring earned experience into the work, earned and learned experience into the work. Uh, and if they get that far, probably have a strong voice and, and not fearful of uh, articulating a counterpoint of view. You know, I, I've been doing this stuff for a long time. And um, I'm on a lot of, not, uh, not corporate boards, but a lot of nonprofit boards where they're, I'm surrounded by some of the wealthiest people in the world. And we go into those meetings, and I just feel like it is my job to be a pain in the ass. It is my job to say, to be what uh, one of the people who's in the, on one of these boards with me, Reed Hastings. Reed Hastings is, if you've ever met him, the, head of, the founder, he is a contrarian. If you say blue, he's going to say purple. I mean, it's just he's got to figure out what saying purple is going to do to you saying blue. Uh, and he wants to always think about things from the not so easy point of view. And, and I feel like that's my job. If I go in there to push, to push, to push, because most people don't want to be pushed. Most people want to just make a comfortable, easy decision and go on to the next stop. So I, I think that um, uh, we not only have to build diversity 
we have to understand that the differences that they bring are going to be uncomfortable. They are going to be different from what we necessarily would think automatically. And maybe that's the real power of what they're bringing, they are bringing into the room. So. So I, I have a question that I want to ask, but um, I, I, realized, I realized we're five minutes in. So I want to take a moment to at least see if maybe there's some audience participation. If not, I Well, they're still here. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Any, any questions from the audience? Okay, then, then I'll. Uh, they're, they're a shy group. They're a shy group. All right. What is, what's next on their agenda? Um, uh, Lunch? N dinner. Oh, dinner. Okay. But, but, but I'm assuming it, it individually. We have nothing else okay. planned. Just to, um, so, you know, increasingly I'm talking to um, organizations, including a PR agency recently, that are, they're not just looking to have DNI initiatives. They're actually trying to actively create an anti-racist work culture. Yes. And I'm wondering what, in your view, does that look like? Wow. You know, so I... <laughs> What is the, what's the, there's a, there's a black professor at American University. Uh, I think his last name is Kendi, is it? Yes. Huh? Help me somebody out Ibram there. Kendi. Ibram Kendi. I haven't read it. He went to, he went to Florida A&M University. He's a rattler. He went to a black college. He has written this book on anti-racism. And I have only gotten through a really great review of it in The New Yorker, by the way, <laughs> which was almost as long as the book, and, a, uh, and, a, uh, and the introduction where he talks about how he, now he's a black male, had to try to get himself to be an anti-racist. So, you know, so one of them, the, the, insidious things about racism in this country is that it's not just something that white people you know, consciously and unconsciously have absorbed into their DNA. It's also something that black people have. And that you know, if we see somebody who's not dressed the right way or speaks with the wrong accent or is not rich or doesn't live in the right neighborhood, we, me, I, have some of those same responses because I've internalized them. And um, that's very painful to recognize. So I would say that, you know, for me, what that said is I got to be, I have to be more conscious. I really want to try to be more conscious and more aware. And um, I think on this issue of race, which I had hoped um, I wouldn't have to think about the way I do today. I've got three kids, three daughters. They're all grown up now. I now have five grandchildren. Boys at either end, five and 17, and three girls in the middle. And the world they're going to inherit still sees them first as what they look like. You know, maybe second, how they speak, how they present themselves. And it's 
and many of the people who see them will see them as less than, not the same as. They'll see them as not as good as. They'll want to pigeonhole them and limit them. And I just think we're still a work in progress as humanity. I don't understand why we do this. Um, but I think it is so destructive. And I think as adults, we have to think about how we are going to stop doing some of the things that we do. You know, whether we're listening to a young, a youngster from, where was she from? Norway or Sweden? I can't remember. Uh, the oh, Greta climate. Thornburg, yeah. Where, where, I mean, you know, yeah, Greta Thornburg, yeah. I mean, who is telling, you know, saying, she didn't like the world we're leaving. Mm -hmm. I think that in every one of these categories, it's gotten to the existential point where we're either going to change the bad habits that we have, or maybe the world that we're going to leave is not going to survive into the next or the next generation. And I think we ought to think about it that way. I want to think about it that way. And, um, and I also hope it means an opportunity for us just to open up our hearts and embrace more people and let them in and, and attempt to be in them, their lives as well. So I mean, that's an old guy thinking about how to do better before I get called to explain myself, uh, either up there or down below. Thank you, Dr. Lomax. And everyone, please join me in thanking Dr. Lomax for joining us today. You've been listening to The Echo Chamber. Brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by Marketeers. This Echo Chamber episode is brought to you by the W2O Group, which is making the world a healthier place through marketing and communications. And it's What to Know podcast on digital marketing and communications.